0: In the book of Exodus, we're continuing in the book of Exodus, and our, our section for today that I've been assigned, right, but it's a great section, uh, Exodus 30 and 31, chapter 30, 31, uh, we'll be turning to, but before we do that, uh, we want to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. So you say, why? why Hebrews 9? Well, we'll see that just in a moment. So turn to Hebrews 9 and then we'll work back towards uh, Exodus, right? I think it's safe to say that uh, for many, many Christians, right, uh, the Old Testament is a foreign book. (laughs) We don't often spend too much time having our devotions out of Leviticus and reading numbers and census accounts and so on. Uh, And uh, with that, right, we don't really understand how the whole Bible fits together. And that's true, I think, including of the book of Exodus, as well. And that's one of the reasons I think we're studying uh, the book and making sure that uh, we're understanding it in its Old Testament context and so on. We even have some uh, famous, well known pastors just south of us. I think you have keep Andy Stanley. Don't want to pick on Andy this morning, but we need to. Uh, he is famous for his phrase that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, that would be a surprise to the New Testament authors. (laughs) That would be a surprise to Jesus. And that would be a surprise, for instance, to you think of the Apostle Paul, who in his uh, famous statement on scripture, right? So we go to 2 Timothy 3, and you remember those famous words where Paul is exhorting young Timothy how to lead the church in difficult times, and he says, Timothy, Guide yourself by the scripture because all scripture is God-breathed. Now often I think most of us sort of read that and think, oh, that's the New Testament. But of course the New Testament is being written. So what the Apostle Paul is referring to here is the Old Testament. It's quite a staggering statement. It's a very challenge to us, right? He says, that Old Testament will lead you to salvation in Christ Jesus, the Old Testament, and Timothy, that Old Testament is for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that you and he's referring to Timothy as the man of God, right, as the pastor, as the elder of the church, but that it would application to the entire people of God that it will help you, right, in your Christian life and instruction in righteousness and so on, right? So it's a good reminder, right, that the whole Bible is necessary, particularly the Old Testament Specifically the book of Exodus for our instruction. Well, the question is, how do we best benefit for us today as Christians from the Old Testament and particularly the book of Exodus? And that's why I turn to Hebrews 9. Right? Hebrews 9, a lot going on in the book of Hebrews, right? The glory of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. But in the book you have a series of comparison contrasting with the Old Testament, right? After text after text of the Old Testament is expounded and laid out, put in its Old Testament context, beautifully put together to show that the whole Bible, the whole testament is leading us to the knowledge of Christ, the fulfillment that comes in Him. Right? Specifically in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is so important for us because the author of Hebrews is describing in chapter 9 exactly where we're at in Exodus. <laughs> So that in Exodus, we'll see just in a moment, right, we are in the description of the priesthood and the tabernacle and how that all functions in terms of Old Testament Israel, but that's what the author picks up here. And in fact goes back to the Old Testament. He describes it in verses 1 to 5 of Hebrews 9. He describes things that we've already looked at and we'll look at today, right? With altars of incense and washing of uh, lavers and instructions for priests and so on. And in fact, he says at the end of verse 5, we cannot discuss these things in detail. That's another way of saying, go back and study the book of Exodus, which is what we're doing. Go back and read Exodus and Leviticus and see how these things are given to us in detail. But he doesn't just say, go read it for you know, interesting, you know, interesting tidbits and to see how the life of Israel worked in the ancient Near East. He says it's for our instruction in fact as he then looks at verse 6 and 7 he will draw things that we'll come back to right When everything had been arranged like this he's now summarizing the point of that system he will draw in verses 7 and so on some limitation features that were built in that were instructive for them and then he says in verse 8 the Holy Spirit was showing us (laughs) that's really important Holy Spirit, right? God is showing us. God is showing us by the very reading of that Old Testament that it wasn't just given for the nation of Israel to govern their life and obedience and so on and so on and so on, right? That's true. But it was also given to teach. It was given as revelation. It was given prophetically. That's very important, right? The Lord Jesus will say that the law, the whole old covenant and the prophets prophesy, they anticipate, they look forward, and it's given to us, he says in verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing and he was showing a number of things that now in light of Christ have now come to pass so that we as Christian readers of the Bible learn from the Old Testament. We don't unhitch it. We see how it is presented in its Old Testament context, but how it has now come to its fulfillment in Christ and its application to us as the people of God living where we live in God's plan and purposes. I've said many times in various places, right, that you and I live in the second best place in all of history. (laughs) The best place to live is when Jesus comes again. New heavens, new earth, that's glorious. But right now, it's the second best time because we live after the coming of Christ. All that the Old Testament anticipated and looked forward to in the unfolding plan of God now has come to pass in Him. We are a privileged people indeed, right? And part of our reading of now the entire Bible is to see how that revelation governed the life of Israel in its period but also now teaches us and instructs us and is prophetic for us to lead us to Christ. Well, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to say that the Holy Spirit is showing us from Exodus lessons to learn for us today living under the new covenant. How are we going to do this? Well, three steps. Every sermonist have three steps, right? Well, not necessarily, but three steps, right? First, what we want to do is now return back to Exodus, right? We want to set Exodus 30 and 31. That's our chapters that we'll be looking at. Set those chapters first in even a broader frame, right? Broader context, right? When you read scripture, right, you never take it out of context. You've got to go back and say, okay, where are we, right? So we want to set the book of Exodus, these chapters, right, in the context of the Old Testament, in its Old Testament context, right? Just that would be a review, reminder of what we're doing when we're looking at the book of Exodus, right? And then secondly, we want to then zero in on 30 and 31, right? How do they fit in this book, right? And then we want to return to Hebrews 9 right, and see the lessons that are already there but then are brought to light in terms of the New Testament and how it applies to us today, right? And how we should then read Exodus, apply it, live it out in light of the glory of Christ. Right. So now let's first look at setting these chapters, Exodus 30, 31, indeed setting the book of Exodus in its Old Testament context. If we step back, sort of zoom out just a bit, What's the book of Exodus all about? Well, you could say it's about God establishing right, a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. Right? Book of Exodus begins right with Israel as slaves in Egypt, and what happens? They come out of Egypt. Right? They come out with an exodus. Right? God frees them, he delivers them, he redeems them. Right? And he calls them to himself. And what's the point of that? Well, it's to enter into covenant relationship. And as you move from the Exodus to Mount Sinai, right, this is where we're at presently in chapter 30 and 31. Right? Uh, already in the book, right, uh, God has entered into covenant relationship. That's chapter 19, 20 through 24. Right, And at that 24, the covenant is ratified. Moses then, at the end of 24, goes up the mount. Right, We're almost in a split screen right now. 25 through 31, where our chapters will fit. Right? Moses is up on the mount, and he's receiving instructions from God regarding, we'll see the tabernacle and the priesthood and so on. Right? And at the bottom of the mount, We'll soon discover, probably next week, the nation of Israel is not doing very well, right? Moses is less than 40 days up in the mount receiving the instructions, 25 through 31, and then chapter 32 gives you the golden calf incident. While he's up there, and this is a lesson to learn, isn't it? While he's up there, the nation of Israel has just obliterated the covenant. Now... They will function as a whole lesson in and of themselves, right, of human sin and depravity and what's necessary to ultimately redeem us. But that's what's going on, and then our chapters will fit right at the end of, you know, Moses receiving the instructions before chapter 32, which is the golden calf incident, right? Now, as we step back and ask, well, what's, what's so important about Israel? What's so important about God entering into covenant relationship with this people? Well, obviously, then you have to place the nation of Israel in terms of Genesis, Sounds basic, but it's important to do. We place it in terms of Genesis, and so what's important about Israel? Well, they're the offspring of Abraham, aren't they? Well, what's important about Abraham? Well, you go back in Genesis and twelve and following, and you discover that uh, Abraham is given promises. He's given promises of a seed. He's given promises that that seed will become a holy nation, right? And that's exactly the same language that's used of Israel and in Exodus 19.6. Right? You are a holy nation, you are a king. Well, Israel is right the holy nation that was promised to Abraham and that's what Exodus is about. Then you say, well, what's, what's significant about that? What's important? right? Yeah, they're the Abrahamic seed. Well, then you have to place Abraham right, in terms of Genesis 1-11 and then you begin to say oh yes Israel's very important how because in Genesis 1 to 11 we learn about Adam Adam who's the head of the human race we all come from him he was given the task of ruling over the earth but of course sin entered the world sin and death and judgment destruction but but God promises to save right? Genesis 315 right out of the human race there's going to come a seed, there's going to come an offspring that will thankfully reverse Adam. Right? And of course that's some sense the whole storyline of the Bible, isn't it? But of course when you see that, then you realize that Abraham, it'll be through Abraham that that seed will come. And that's why he's important. And ultimately it'll be through the nation of Israel that the seed will come. Right? And of course that ultimately is Jesus, isn't it, right? They play, without Israel, without Abraham, we have no salvation, right? Out of them comes Jesus, right? But Israel also functions in other ways, too, and this gets into the point of the tabernacle and priesthood and so on, right? Through them, Christ will come, but they are a holy nation. They're corporately the people of God, right? They are called to be a holy nation, and Exodus 19.6 also calls them a kingdom of priests. That's significant, Last week, Adam looked at Exodus 19.6, priesthood, and then some of the instructions of priesthood in Exodus. But kingdom of priests, first before when you think of priest, we often think of priest in terms of offering of sacrifice. That's true. But priest, first and foremost, goes all the way back to Adam in some sense, first and foremost is a person who dwells before God. We were all called to be priests. We were all called to be devoted to God and to dwell before God and to live before God and obedience to God. That's part of the covenant relationship. Israel now is a corporate, right, Some sense what Adam should have been, what we're supposed to be, right? They're plucked out of the human race. They are a kingdom of priests, and that's why they are called to dwell before God. That's why the land is so important, isn't it? They've got to get in the land. What's the point of an important part of the land, right? That's where God will dwell. Now, God's all present, but here now is a unique covenantal presence, right? You see that in Eden, but it's lost, You see it recaptured in some sense in limited form with the nation of Israel in the land, but particularly in the tabernacle and in the temple. And that's where our chapters are coming into play, right? It's very interesting, right, that Israel is a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, through them Messiah will come, but as a kingdom of priests, they need a priest, There's where you have the whole Levitical, right? Aaron and his sons. Why are Aaron and sons important? They come out of Israel and they function as the mediators. Why do you need a mediator? Because Israel has a problem. (laughs) All of us have a problem. Israel has a problem is that they are sinners before God. How does a holy God How does God in all of his glory and justice and holiness and splendor, the full glory of God that we've been singing about, behold our God, right? How does that God dwell in covenantal presence with sinful people? That's a real problem. And how it works itself out in scripture, right, is through priest, through atonement, through sacrifice, through tabernacle in some sense, right? The tabernacle. The tabernacle is a kind of means by which the presence of God, you think of the Holy of Holies, It's a means by which God uniquely dwells, not only in the wilderness, but then in the land, and then that's tied to the temple. That's what all of this is going on. And so as Moses then is receiving instructions on the mount, 25 through 31, all of those instructions are regarding the tabernacle. The system of sacrifice, the priesthood. Why is this important? Because this is the means by which the holy God will dwell with his covenant people. Right? And that's what all of this will be about in terms of our chapters, right? Already there's a lesson here, right? Of God's grace. The whole provision of the Old Covenant is a gracious provision, right? God chooses to not bring final judgment upon Israel, but blessing, and ultimately blessing to the world. He gives them provision of priesthood and tabernacle and so on, right? Yet, 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 in the great scheme of things, right, it wasn't just to govern their life and to allow for presence. It did all of that. But as the author of Hebrews will remind us, it was also eventually to teach them. We're supposed to dawn on them that this could not be the ultimate end. There had to be something greater. Just as you provide for us a priest, there's going to eventually have to come a better priest. Just as you give us sacrifice, there's going to have to be better sacrifice. Just as you give us this glorious covenant, there's going to have to be a greater covenant. Of course, that's how the plan of God unfolds, but that's where Exodus is part of that larger plan and story, right? Now we turn to, secondly, Exodus 30 through 31. Now we're in a place to say, okay, if you just open up Exodus 30 in verse 1, you just read about build an altar of incense, and you say, what's this all about? Well, you've got to set it in terms of 25 through 31. This is part of the ongoing instructions of Moses on the Mount, where now this whole tabernacle system, is gracious gift, Is given to the nation of Israel that the priests will mediate for the nation so that the Holy God can dwell with them right now in these chapters they're already built off of the instruction of priesthood and so on and they have some kind of miscellaneous uh, elements they're all important but it's the instructions that Moses receives and of course at the end of chapter 31 it is highlighted for you in verse 18 when God the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the two tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Right. So the instructions he receives and then the tablets of stone, what we identify with the Ten Commandments, are inscribed by the very finger of God. He receives them. He is to bring them down to the people, and they are supposed to obey them, but we'll soon see you next week in 32, they're not doing that so he smashes the tablets, right? But in 30 and 31, we have the end of the description of the tabernacle and some elements, right? And in this, right, as you look at this, there's already built-in lessons, right? There's built-in instruction, right? So turn to chapter 30, verse 1. We're first told in verses 1 to 10, instructions regarding the altar of incense. The altar of incense was placed in the holy place, just outside the curtain that would take you into the Holy of Holies, right? And it's given specific instructions. Part of the point you learn here is that God's very specific. When God says, you come my way and you do it my way, he's showing that he is the Lord, right? I mean, we have to learn this lesson as, (laughs) as, as sinful people, right? We like to make it our way, right? The old Frank Sinatra syndrome. My old blue eyes used to say, I'll do it my way. Well, that's the height of sin and depravity. Right? And what you have in terms of here is God saying, You do it my way or you die. That's an important lesson of itself, the God of Scripture, what sin is, and so on, right? So you have in verse one, make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense, then he describes it. Verse three, overlay the top with sides and gold and the beauty of it. And you know, you get all of that. It's beautiful instruments, holy unto the Lord. He then says in verse 6, put the altar in front of the curtain. That's before the Ark of the Testimony, before the atonement cover, right? So it goes outside the curtain before the holy place, holy of holies, where I'll meet with you. Even that phrase is glorious, right? God will meet with them. But even then, it's going to be hemmed. It's going to be couched. It's going to be through a curtain. It's going to be through a priest, right? The author of Hebrews will pick this up. Even that tabernacle that allows for God to meet with them, he's really only meeting with one person. Only once a year, right? But that will be developed as you work through Leviticus, right? And then you read in verse 7, and then notice here the instructions, the commands. Aaron must. <laughs> right? Not just suggestions, right? Must burn fragrant incense. Verse 8, he must burn incense. Verse 9, do not offer. Right? And then you have it emphasized over again in all the way through. All of this is to be holy unto the Lord, right? So you have the instructions, but all the way, this is the pattern. This is the command. Do it exactly as I say, right? Very similar to Genesis 2. God says to Adam, he says, this is the command, obey, right? And there's a sense of that runs through the entire revelation of God, right? You then read in verse 17, further instructions here of basins. That's just all part of the tabernacle, right? Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin for washing. 19, Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water, right? So obviously God wants them clean, but there's something more about this cleanness. (laughs) It isn't just to get the dirt off your feet. I mean, it's that. And ultimately, this is a command that speaks of a... Hey, this priest, if he's gonna represent the people and he's gonna come into my presence, he'd better be clean. And in fact, if he doesn't clean himself up, we read in verse 20, he's gonna die. Right? And then you read right after that, also they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering and of making fire to the Lord. They shall wash their hands so that they will not die, right? This offering of fire, right? It's not too far after this. That you turn to Leviticus 10, right? That's not very long later, right? It seems like it's further along, but after the system is eventually put in place, after the golden calf incident, the glory of the Lord fills the place at the end of Exodus, you then have the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus gives you initial instructions regarding the sacrifices, and then it gets all going, the whole system, the sacrificial system. Leviticus 10 is the inauguration of the sacrificial system, and what happens to Nadab and Abihu when they come and they offer from the very beginning unauthorized fire? They fall dead before Aaron. There's some lessons there. God is holy. Sin doesn't, you know, people just don't approach him on their own terms, right? I mean, there's all these points that are being made. You come my way or no way at all. There's provision, but it's my way, right? And then you see this emphasized in verse 22 and following. Verse 22, you have the anointing oil. Everything is anointed things as well as people right so you have in verse 22 you have graphic description very specific description in verse 25 make these a sacred anointing oil and then what do you do verse 26 anoint the tent of meeting the ark of testimony the table of articles everything anoint why because it has to be set apart right? God is holy right and then, of course, Aaron and the sons have to be set apart as well. Verse 30, anoint Aaron and his sons. Consecrate them. Verse 32, do not pour it on men's bodies. Do not do this. Otherwise, they will be, and you have in verse 33, they'll be cut off. They'll die, right? I mean, this is a point that runs through the entire Old Covenant, right? Provision, grace, but my way, right? All the way through the Old Covenant, clean, unclean, washing anointing, the priest. What's God teaching them? You're a sinful people. There needs to be a cleansing. There needs to be a washing. There needs to be a provision. There needs to be atonement. All that is just drilled, should be drilled into their head, right? And then you have in incense in verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices and so on. And so much so that if even you don't follow properly the fragrant spices, you see in verse 38, you'll be cut off, right? God means business. I mean, these are points, right? If you go back to chapter 30, verse 11, we pass by that, All right? We look more just at the altar of incense and basins and anointing oil and so on, right? Yet in verse 11 and following, it's very interesting here. Here's a census account, and that shows up a number of places in the Old Testament. In fact, David once does an unauthorized census, and a plague comes. And you have that sort of note here that if you do the census improperly, we read in verse 12 that a plague will come. And that does happen in Israel's history. But there's something going on in the census, right? Is that as the people are counted... All the people, exact number. Rich, poor, bring the same amount. I mean, part of the reason for the census is to count the people so that they then give a certain amount of money to carry out the purposes and the costs and so on of the tabernacle system. Yet, it's more than that, right? You are to ransom each person by this cost, right? You read in verse 16, that makes atonement for your lives, Right? God in many ways is teaching here. You have it done a number of ways from representative figures, Passover and the priests and even the people, right? For you to be atoned for, you need a ransom. You need to be bought back. Ultimately, in some sense, the entire system is doing that, right? The high priest represents the people. The priests represent them. They offer on their behalf. That's how you can continue to dwell in the presence of God and be holy and forgiveness of sins and so on, right? Now, chapter 31. Chapter 31 now gives us, again, some finishing Points of Moses' instructions. And all of these are significant not only in Exodus but as they run through the entire Bible. Right? Chapter 31, verses 1 through 11, where we we'll read about two individuals who are filled with the Spirit of God. And they're filled to build the tabernacle, right? So God pours out his spirit, fills them, so that they become excellent in skill and ability and knowledge, we read in verse 3, right? Even God's provision of the tabernacle, right? The spirit of God has to work powerfully and supernaturally upon them to build this beautiful tabernacle, right? Now we read about these two individuals, right? They are part of a larger pattern in Scripture. The right? Spirit of God is found all through the Old Testament, but the Spirit of God uniquely comes in the Old Testament upon people like this for leadership and for craftsmanship and also for leadership. Right? Prophets have the Spirit anointing them. Priests are anointed by the Spirit. The kings, we didn't associate the kings. Messiah, very, the term very Messiah, is tied to anointed one. The anointing of the Spirit, right? David says, don't take your spirit from me and so on. In the Old Testament, we have God already putting gifts and empowering upon individuals. And as that works out through the Bible, eventually all of these leaders and figures, right? There will come one who will have the Spirit in full measure. That'll be the Lord Jesus, right? He will be the one who will pour out his Spirit on his people. And in fact, as you work through the passages on the Spirit in the Old Testament, Spirit's work is not just merely for empowering and gifting, that's true. But ultimately, the Spirit must take out hearts of stone. Give hearts a flesh. I mean, that'll become very important. That's tied to circumcision in the Old Testament, circumcision of heart. And that becomes a major theme in Deuteronomy as well as in the prophets. And this is just part of a beginning pattern that's there that has to be understood in terms of Exodus itself. Right? And then you have the Sabbath. The Sabbath is presented to us in verse 12. It's the sign of the old covenant. The Abrahamic covenant has the sign of circumcision. And circumcision, right, is to be obeyed by Abraham's children and offspring, yet it also functions prophetically in scripture. It's also to teach them that you can take the male and you can circumcise them but they all, everybody needs a circumcised heart, right? There's a kind of, you know, institution that's established that is ultimately prophetic. The same thing goes on with Sabbath. Sabbath functions under the old covenant as obedience, Obey me. Work six days, take one day off, right? That's obedience. But it also, right, is giving them rest and all those kind of things. But the Sabbath ultimately goes back to creation, doesn't it? The Sabbath, part of the very purpose of our creation is to know God, is to be in relation to God, is to rest in God, to trust God, right? And as you work through the Sabbath, the Sabbath isn't just a day to get rest, it is. But it also points beyond itself to something more. As it walks through the Old Testament, even getting into the land is a place of rest. Ultimately, what's needed is a greater work of God to give us rest with him, ultimately a salvation rest. But those are themes that will develop later. But here, it shows the importance of the Sabbath for the nation of Israel to be obedient, but also to Teach them. The Holy Spirit is instructing them in all these areas as you put all of Scripture together. Right now, as you put all this together, right, you have description of life under the old covenant. You have a description of the priesthood and the tabernacle. This is the means, right, by which the Holy God has called out His covenantous people. They are a corporate priesthood. It's the means by which sinners can dwell in His presence. Right in some sense in Israel, in the tabernacle and eventually the land and temple and so on, it's almost like you have a kind of microcosm of Eden restored (laughs) and it's meant to be that, right? In Eden you have, in Genesis 2, you have Adam and Eve in God's presence, right? Well that's removed in the fall and it says as if, you know, in Israel the presence of God is restored to a certain point, but oh how little. (laughs) And that's the point, right? It's only the Holy of Holies, right? Yes, in the land, but even then you have to go through mediators, right? And you can't, the people can't walk into the holy place and they certainly can't walk into the holy of holies and not all the priests can get it in the holy. But there's, there's lessons there of access to God, right? There's lessons also of the washings and the cleansings and the repetitious nature of this system, right? Even the priests are dirty. <laughs> even they need atonement. And then it's done over and over and over again. Of course, that will be picked up in Leviticus with the Day of Atonement. And you begin to wonder, are we ever going to be clean? Are we ever going to be forgiven totally? Is there ever going to be a point where we can have full access to God? Well, let's go to Hebrews 9. Yes, there is, and of course, that's where the book of Hebrews now takes us. So we want to now see how the author of Hebrews now takes these points from our passage in Exodus and doesn't just leave them there and say, well, you've got some interesting tidbits about the life of Israel. But he says, right, the Holy Spirit's telling us, right, learn from this, right? Learn how this fits for the nation of Israel, but learn how now in light of Christ you are to live, right? So in Hebrews 9, 1 to 5, as I said, describes exactly the kind of things we've been describing. And then when he steps back, some of the points I've already sort of hit and emphasized, right? Verse 6 begins to sort of step back and say, what's going on in all of this? What are you to learn from? What, what should the nation of Israel have learned from this? Right? Well, he says in verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, right, just as as Moses is given. The priests entered, and of course this happens in Leviticus. This is how the system takes place. The priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. That's a holy place. But, and notice these limitations, right? And that's the point. But only the high priest entered the inner room. So that means then that no one else but him. But the very point of the inner room is to have full access to God's presence. But only him. Right? And then notice, it's only once a year. Right? You say, well, why? wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to enter all the time? Wouldn't it be able to ever have full access to God? Right? That's why we are created, but not only once a year, only this mediator who represents the nation, and never without blood. And then notice it's never without blood, which is first offered, of course this is now a reference to the day of atonement, Right, first offered for himself, the priest. So what's that tell you? The priest is a fallen sinner. The priest needs to be cleansed. We've already seen that with basins and so on, right? And incense. Uh, He needs atonement for himself. I mean, he's got a problem, let alone the people have a problem. So he first has to deal with his own sins, then the sins of the people. And then notice then what the author says in verse 8. (laughs) the Holy Spirit was showing you. The Holy Spirit was showing you that all of this, as important as it was in the Old Testament context, as it governed the life of Israel, it was prophetic. It looked forward. It was instructive. It was to teach them. In fact, the Holy Spirit was teaching Israel, and now he's teaching us, that the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as the first tabernacle was still standing. You say, well, what do you mean... (laughs) The, the holy, holy of holies, isn't uh, accessible, type of thing. Didn't the high priest go in? Yes, but the point of it was this was ultimately to point forward to a full access. And they never had that full access. And this was just simply temporary. And this was just simply a shadow of something far greater. It was just sort of a microcosm of something much more, right? The holy, most holy place was not fully accessible. This is an illustration for the present time that gifts and sacrifices are not able to clear the conscience, right? And they're not able to clear the conscience. And he'll say this in chapter 10 because they were done over and over and over again. And also, it's just blood of bulls goats. Bull and goat can't represent you. Bull and goat can't take away your sin. What we need is an obedient one who's human, but also God, right? We need a unique one to stand in our place. And of course, that's where he goes in verse 11 for us, right? When Christ had come as the high priest of the good things that are already here, right? The Old Testament anticipated these good things. But now Christ has come as as the one who has now brought them. He went through not the earthly tabernacle, earthly temple. He went through the more perfect. Now that's not to say that there's some tabernacle in heaven or something. No, he's speaking of the old as a hype and shadow, right? It points to something greater. When Jesus died on the cross, he tore that curtain of the veil of the holy of holy place into. All of that shadow now comes to pass in him. By his death, right, he entered not by, he says in verse 12 here, the blood of bulls and goats. That was important, but it pointed forward. What he entered by was his own blood. But his own blood of who? The Son of God, right? The Son of God who is able to now represent us in his humanity and his deity. The one who now enters by his own blood and notice what he does here. He answers once for all. <laughs> that's quite a contrast with the old, right? The old was done every year, once a year, repetition, but this, this sacrifice, once for all time and done, right? Now that's what the prophets even in the Old Testament anticipated, didn't they? As the system was carried out, right, the prophets knew full well that there was coming in the future a new covenant, an everlasting covenant, a covenant that would bring in the language of Jeremiah 31 the full forgiveness. God says, I'll never remember your sins anymore. Well, what does that mean? It ultimately means that sin is paid for. Sin is paid for in full. The old could only point Forward to it. But Jesus now, once for all time, by his own blood, verse 12, has now brought an eternal redemption. Not just temporary, not just a point or two, but an eternal redemption. And then he says in verse 14, how much more so will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, who offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences. No conscience was really ever cleansed in the old covenant. Right. It pointed forward to it, yes. Think of old poor David. <laughs> old poor David when he commits what's called a high-handed sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, right? The old covenant didn't even make provision for high-handed sins. What's he supposed to do? Well, ultimately, he has to look forward to a greater provision, a greater covenant. And that's what now has come in Jesus Christ, right? So how are we to read Exodus? Exodus. Well, we read Exodus by saying, what does it say in its Old Testament context? What's it teaching the people of Israel? But we must also read it as saying, how should it now be seen? What was it teaching us? How is it pointing forward? And how is it now brought to pass been passed in Christ, right? First thing you have to say is, as you put all of this together... It's no wonder that the Bible will say, and we have to say this in our day and age, right? There's only one name given under heaven by which people can be saved, right? The Old Testament, right, pointed to that, but you put this together in this way and you then say, it's no wonder that Jesus alone is Savior. Jesus alone is Lord, that there's no salvation outside of him, which is a major point that we have to take seriously here. Maybe there's someone here who thinks that, you know, you can just play with Jesus, a nice religious leader, a nice person, you know, he gave us the Sermon on the Mount or something like that. Well, listen, Jesus is the Lord, right? Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone is king, as we've been singing about. He deserves all of our love. and effect. Even the Old Testament saints had to look forward to him. He has now come, and we now must find salvation in him and him alone. And, of course, out of that comes, too, as people then that profess faith in Christ, right? We live under the reality of the New Covenant. Do you ever rejoice, right, in the glory of salvation in Christ? As you begin your work week next tomorrow or something like that, do you ever have a joy in your step and you say, Christ is my Lord and Savior. He has won for me new covenant access. I can come to know the triune God through him and my sin is paid. Does that govern your life or are you just in the dumps all the time? Are you just uh, someone who isn't contagious in the sense of their love for the Lord, their love for the gospel, right? We can be consumed with so many secondary things. I mean, the whole evangelical world today is consumed with all kinds of secondary things, but they've lost the love of Christ and the gospel, right? Does that drive you in terms of your life, how you think, how you act? That's how this is ultimately to be applied to us, right? Does the love of Christ constrain us, right? Does he motivate us? Does he say, Oh, what a glorious Savior he is? How will the whole Testament pointed forward to him. And I find my salvation in him and him alone, right? Oh, he's a glorious Savior that needs to be <laughs> known and trusted and embraced and proclaimed, right? Proclaimed to such a poor, lost world that we live in. Well, much more could be said, but there we try to say, listen, exodus is for us. Exodus is for our instruction. Exodus, all of scripture, right, is to be read ultimately in the light of Christ. And we're to glory in the full revelation of God, not on hitching it, right? but knowing what it says in its context and its application and thus live for Christ, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the revelation of yourself. Thank you for Exodus. Thank you for Exodus 30 and 31, how these little pieces fit in terms of your overall plan and how they instruct us, even in these matters, about the glory of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your Son. We thank you that he meets our every need. We thank you that he is not like the priests of old. Oh, no. He is perfect in every way. His atoning death brings the full payment of our sin. What a glorious truth. Full atonement can it be. And may we, each one here, know him, live for him, rejoice in him, orient our entire lives in light of him, and even this week, live for his glory. And it's in his name that we ask these things, amen.